0: Hello, hello, welcome back to Loki's Library. If you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books that is at my house, not currently with me because I am still traveling for my day job. But after I read the book, I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about it. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like, and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, meaning it is time for the next president, making this week's book of the week. The Unexpected President, Life and Times of Chester A. Arthur by Scott S. Greenberger. The accompanying cocktail is going to be a highball. Now, I know I did a highball a few months ago with Ulysses S. Grant, but that one had a few extra steps. Uh, This one is just going to be a classic whiskey highball. So it's two ounces of whiskey, four ounces of ginger beer, and a lemon wedge. So let's do this. Chester Alan Arthur, so that's the A in the the A part, was born October 5th, 1829 in Fairfield, Vermont, to William and Malvina Arthur. William Arthur was a preacher and an avid abolitionist at a time when abolitionists were seen as extremists and were really unpopular with their neighbors everywhere, not just in the South. William Arthur was chased out of more than one town in New York for his views and for preaching abolitionism. They were really unpopular. Um... Two ounces. Of hmm. This cup is not very big. I maybe should have half the recipe. Am I going to have room for that much beer? For that much ginger beer? We're going to find out. So this meant that Arthur was raised with the strong moral sense of the evils of slavery. And I mean, Arthur, as he grew up, he was like this big affable guy. Um, he was well-liked, he was popular with his classmates, he attended Union College where he received a classical education, uh, meaning languages and philosophy. Uh, he was a teacher for a brief bit before moving to New York City and becoming an attorney for off a friend, family friend, Erastus Culver. Eventually he became a junior partner in Culver's firm. Oh, there is enough room in there. Doesn't have to be shaken, which is good because it's a fizzy drink and the' lemon wedge to go in. Um, anyways, he was a junior partner in, in Culver's firm, and that's where he received his first kind of high-profile case, a full hundred years ahead of Rosa Park and the Alabama bus boycott. Um, Elizabeth Jennings was an African-American school teacher, and she was late for church one day when she boarded a streetcar in New York that had been designated for white people only. The driver at first seemed cool with it, but the ticket taker or guard, I don't remember which one, but he basically told her to get off the bus and she refused. She's like, Look, I am late for church. You are going my way, take me to my church. There was a bit of a scuffle. Eventually the guard and the driver gave up and they continued on their way and she rode along all the way up until basically they spotted a policeman, at which case they pulled over, called the cop on board, and the cop escorted her off, told her, you know, if you have a problem with it, sue him. And she did. And the law firm came to the or the lawsuit excuse me was brought to culver's firm and arthur was assigned to work on it and arthur sued the transport company on her behalf and she won she was awarded 225 plus dollars 25 dollars in court costs which is about seven thousand seventy eight hundred dollars today which sounds like kind of small potatoes but more important than the money was the legal precedence which was set for all tra- public transport to be desegregated and it did take some time but much faster than in the south, the the public transport in New York was desegregated and it was because of Arthur's lawsuit on behalf of Miss Jennings. Now in 1856 he met Ellen Herndon and fell in love. He quickly became engaged and he decided to move to Kansas. Um, His thought was to go out there, set up the, the law offices, and then have Ellen join him. And he went out to Kansas. This is during the height of leading Kansas. So everything's in chaos. Lots of people are being shot and killed, um, both abolitionists and pro-slavery people. And this, so this was ultimately not a bad plan, right? He's an up-and-coming lawyer where there's a lot of crime being committed, a lot of, um, on both sides. There's room for growth, quick advancement, and a chance to kind of make a real name for yourself as, as this attorney, civil rights attorney, because he was his father's son in that respect he believed in the rights of all men and believed abolitionism was the cause of the future but then while he was in Kansas his prospective father-in-law commander william lewis herndon died now herndon is actually quite famous uh, herndon virginia is named for him i feel, feel like there's a herndon pennsylvania that's also named for him and his courage and how he died which is how which is that he went down with the ship now That doesn't sound like much, right? A captain is kind of expected to go down with the ship. But he made damn sure all the women and children got off that ship and safely aboard the rescue vessel before the ship actually went down. And and he was lauded as a hero kind of all over the place as a result of that. Mm, I do love a ginger highball. However, his death precipitated two things. Uh, First, a financial panic ensued. The ship had been carrying an enormous gold deposit on board, and that gold is now at the bottom of the sea. So banks and people panicked. Second, Ellen Herndon asked Arthur to return to New York to be with her and her mother. And this return to New York is kind of one of those pivotal moments in history. Had Arthur stayed in Kansas and later sent for Ellen to join him, which had been the plan, he would never have become embroiled in the Republican political machine that later elevated him to the vice presidency. They did marry in 1859. They ultimately had three children. The oldest died when he was two, but the other two did live, I believe, all the way to adulthood. I I know his second-born, who was Chester, Alan Arthur II, definitely made it to adulthood. I feel like his daughter, Alan, did too. But the Republican Party, in its modern iteration, was founded in 1854. It fielded its first presidential candidate in 1856. That was John C. Fremont and his first presidential win in 1860 with Abraham Lincoln. And Arthur was on the ground floor of this budding political party. He was 27 years old and found his first political patron in Edwin Morgan. Other political patrons included Thomas Murphy and the infamous Roscoe Conkling. Now, in 1860, with the outbreak of Civil War, Arthur, like many other civil-minded men, enlisted and was made quartermaster general of the new york militia and he was good at this job he was organized he was efficient he made sure everybody was clothed and sheltered and had food the only downside was that his southern bride and mother-in-law were southern sympathizers the herndons were from virginia this is this is why there's a herndon virginia he called her his little rebel bride Now at one point Arthur made the trip to Maryland to visit his I believe brother who had been wounded in action and then also visited with his in-laws. It was cordial but a bit stiff apparently. Now throughout all of this the political machine in New York kept growing and at the center of the power base is the position of collector of the port of New York. All right, Millions of dollars and I mean millions of dollars in 19th century money which would make it billions and or trillions today came through the port of New York annually. And the collector was responsible for getting the taxes, the tariffs gathered on these imports and exports. If there are tariffs on the export, he had to collect those too. So this was an exceptionally powerful patronage position. And whoever was the collector was in a position to help his party tremendously by leveraging all the tariff collector positions into jobs for his friends. Cargo inspectors were jobs for friends. And you could insist that party contributions were required as part of accepting that post. And so this was a powerful position to have. Now initially Thomas Murphy was the collector. I he was I think he was assigned under Grant, but I might he might have been assigned under Lincoln or I'm sorry, it would have been Johnson, huh? Yeah. Anyways, initially it was Thomas Murphy, and he used his post to get Arthur a job as an attorney for the Port of New York, which I don't think that position had existed prior to that. But Arthur was granted the position, and he was also granted a hefty salary of $10,000 per year, which is like 343000 in today's dollars. Murphy was eventually removed as collector, uh, which is not an uncommon occurrence. It was a political patronage position, meaning if you pissed off the wrong person, you could lose it like that. But Murphy was particularly prone to greed so he only held the position for a few years and he levied some pretty unjust fines it had the shipping magnets pushing back like hard and into this moment Conkling stepped up and recommended Arthur as his replacement and Arthur was a collector of the Port of New York from 1871 to 1878 which is an enormous length of time most collectors barely lasted two years so he did this for a long time basically just using that position to get investments going and, and to bring in more money for himself, for his party. I mean he he was certainly a multimillionaire by the time he was done with that position. Multimillionaire by today's in today's dollars. I, I mean I, I feel like it was only fifty thousand a year when he was porta collector, but still that's gonna be an enormous sum of money, right? Um he was ultimately removed by Rutherford B. Hayes and Hayes' attempt to overhaul the patronage system. And a little over a year after his removal in 1878, he was made chairman of the Republican Party in New York under Conkling's direct patronage. Conkling at this point in time is a senator uh, to to, the, to D.C. In 1880, Ellen died, leaving Arthur a widower and the sole parent to their young daughter. And that's what he was doing. He was doing this chairman of the party of, uh, of the New York Republican Party and raising his daughter when he went to the 1880 Republican Convention where Garfield was ultimately nominated. And because Garfield knew he needed New York to win, he asked Arthur to balance the ticket. Uh, Conkling was not pleased with this. He he wanted Garfield to reject it. Uh, But Garfield, since he had no experience in Congress, the senator, either at a local level or nationally, realized this was basically his his chance. This is the highest honor he was ever going to get, was this position of vice president, because he'd never served in any other um, executive or legislative position. And so he accepted it and then used his enormous network of contacts that he had made as collector of New York to chubby more donations and more votes, ultimately securing New York for the Republicans and thus ensuring a victory for the Garfield-Arthur ticket. There's actually more information on Arthur's vice presidency in last month's book on, on Garfield, but Arthur essentially played second fiddle to Conkling during this time, following the dictates of the Republican machine and doing as he was told. And that lasted all the way up until July 2nd, 1881, when word reached him with the assassination attempt of James Garfield. Now, when Arthur heard, first off, that James had been shot, second, that Charles, Charles Gateau's words on being arrested were that, you know, he was, Gateau was a stalwart and Arthur would be president. Arthur's blood ran cold. I mean, he knew the entire nation was watching and basically no one was happy at the thought of an Arthur presidency. He was known to be a Conkling man, and the entire country thought that basically it was going to be Conkling running things behind the scenes and that Arthur was just going to be a figurehead. Into this moment in time, a curious connection is made in the three months two and a half months between garfield being shot and his actual death julia sand who's the youngest daughter of a wealthy new york family of, of christian henry sand began writing letters to arthur now it wasn't a correspondence in that arthur never wrote her back at least none, no no letters have been found indicating he wrote her back and i believe he, she probably would have kept them But we know he did receive and read her letters because there was a stack of like 23 letters was found by his son, Chester Allen, after Arthur's death, Uh, several years, like, I don't know, 30, 40 years after his death. But they had been specifically set aside and kept together. So there's no doubt that something about these letters spoke to Arthur and provided him some comfort and guidance. So Julia Sand expressed several things pretty consistently in her letters. First off, condolences at the difficult spot he found himself in. She recognized that he never wanted to be president and certainly did not want to be president under these circumstances. She acknowledged that most Americans did not want an Arthur presidency and that America in general feared a Conkling presidency in reality, that Garth would just be that figurehead. And she believed that he was his own man and would be an excellent president. And if he would shake off Conkling and follow his own conscience and do the right thing, he would be an amazing president. And she expressed that to him fully, said, I have faith in you, basically. And I kind of think if she hadn't started by acknowledging that difficult spot and expressing sympathy for his sorrow, he might've just ignored them. So it it might've just fallen under, you know, everybody else's writing him and sending him things. But she she made a connection with him. And the fact that she did see this tough spot, did know that he was mourning and that he never wanted this. it, It hit him hard and it made him think. So when the fateful day came that Garfield shuffled off this mortal coil, Arthur took the oath of office and then his speech during the official inauguration a few days later in dc indicated that he was going to carry on garfield's legacy basically he said this is this is he's just a placeholder for garfield this is still garfield's presidency and he's going to do what garfield wanted done and then he lived up to it he didn't just pay lip service to that he actually did it and he began immediately talking about civil service reform and when the first civil service act was signed in 1883 he didn't just sign it, he enforced it. He followed the provisions of the law, you know, created the the three-man panel that was bipartisan to ensure that the 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 Reform Act went through and was carried out as it was written. And all of this contributed to Arthur rebuilding a good name for himself with the American people. Uh, Arthur did not enjoy the White House. Since he had never thought he would be there, it was not something he wanted, he didn't, I mean, well, he certainly had some executive capability, which he learned during his position as quartermaster during the Civil War, is not what he wanted. Uh, He was essentially a private man, and he did everything he could to keep his young daughter out of the public eye. If somebody would ask about her, he would cut off the conversation, and he also tried to keep his own life as private as he could, which might be why he never wrote back to Julia Sands. It also could be that some of her letters were very flirtatious. I I feel like she probably had a bit of a crush on him, and he... he loved his wife and he, he mourned her death up until his own passing, um, like nine years later. Uh, he did, however, visit Julia Sand one time, like one memorable time. He surprised the family at home while he was in New York and spent an evening engaged in conversation with the Sand family. And It's a visit that kind of, visit that kind of went down to family lore and was confirmed to Chester Allen Jr. in the 1930s when he reached out to the Sand family to ask about the letters that he found. I guess it'd be 40 years after, yeah, about 40 years after he died. So one of her nephews who had been present during the visit told Chester Allen Jr. all about it. Now, the downside of Arthur keeping his private life private is he did not want the nation to know that he had Bright's disease. Uh, Bright's disease is a kidney disease. It's modernly known as nephritis in which the tissues of the kidney become inflamed and have a hard time filtering waste from the blood. Now, this can be the result of toxins, infection, or an autoimmune disease. It could be a combination of one, two, or all three of those. For Arthur, it's entirely possible that it was because of alcohol. He had been part of the political machine for 20 years, 30 years almost, and that involved heavy drinking, heavy use of alcohol for all hours of the day and night it wasn't uncommon for him to have people over for a dinner at dinner party at 7 p.m that lasted until 3 a.m and they would drink constantly throughout all of this so let's here's to president arthur but ultimately it it definitely caused him health issues so in 1884 when his secretary of the navy william w william e chandler approached arthur about using the machine to get arthur reelected in 1884 arthur told him no Part of this was because he was sick, but part of it is, is he wanted the nomination of the Republican candidate to be the will of the people. And had this happened organically, he would have accepted, but it didn't. He didn't want to be mobilizing on his behalf, and so James G. Blaine of Maine ended up with a nomination in 1884 and ultimately lost to Democrat Grover Cleveland, who was the first Democrat to sit in the White House since 1860, or I guess 1859, technically. Oh, no, it'd be 1860, because Lincoln stepped up in 61. So, with some relief upon his loss, Arthur retired to private life. And he was quite wealthy. I mean, he didn't have much of his White House salary left, but he made considerable investments during his time as collector of the Port of New York, and he was able to live quite comfortably until he died on November 18th, 1886. It's interesting, though. So, the author draws the conclusion that Arthur was probably ashamed of some of the machinations that went on when he was part of the Republican machine, Because Arthur, in that time between when he stepped down as president and his death, uh, burned a huge chunk of his political writings and and political activities from when he was part of the Republican machine. And so I I think shame is probably a very likely explanation for this. I mean, it, it could be that there were illegal activities in there. But as a lawyer, why would he have kept anything that was directly illegal that could prove that he had engaged in illegal activities? So I feel like shame is probably a valid reason. So we don't have a whole lot of his writing and papers from when he was part of that Republican machine from 1856 up until he he stepped into the White House. But he did keep his White House papers and then this stack of letters from Miss Julia Sand. This book was okay. I mean it was not bad. I I always love a good redemption story arc and, and that was certainly there in full. Right, He outlined kind of Uh, Arthur's fall from a preacher's son to a corrupt politician and how Arthur raised himself back up with a bit of guidance from his friend Miss Julia Sand and became a president. The country was sad to see go when he left the White House and when he died the nation mourned his passing. The only thing that sort of bugged me and I got over it real quick and I'll explain all of this it is first off it constantly harped on Republican corruption and the this is like leaned on that button in me that's like but the Democrats are just as corrupt right Tammany Hall was just as bad but then it occurred to me um, shockingly late in the book actually that the reason it leans so hard on Republican corruption is because this book was about the Republican Party <laughs> I mean it was part of Arthur it was about Arthur too but he was so embroiled in the Republican machine that that You couldn't not discuss the corruption in the Republican Party at this time. And without that corruption, Arthur would never have been VP when Garfield was shot. Without that corruption, Garfield might not ever have been shot. I remember from last month's book, the reason Gateau shot Garfield is Gateau believed he was owed a patronage position. And yes, the Democrats used patronage just as fiercely when they were in office, but they were not in office when all this went down. The Republicans were. And so that's the story that needed to be told. And it was told quite well by the author. And the book was not bad overall. I think, I think Arthur found himself in a difficult spot. Uh, He really did not want to be president. He especially did not want to be president as a result of an assassination, especially not when the assassin cited Arthur as the reason for the assassination. Um, I think he was not surprised that people didn't trust him. I I think that it hurt his feelings, but I feel like when Julia Sand reached out to him, it made him examine why he wasn't trusted and acknowledge his own complicity in that failure. And he used it to turn himself around, which is not something that a great many people do. Not many people are that self-reflective and able to acknowledge their own failings that led to whatever point in history it is and the fact that he was able to do that speaks volumes about the man and and how he came to be the president that he was which was not bad overall i think he was ultimately surprised to see how well he came to be regarded and how much the people came to embrace him following garfield's following him as he followed garfield's path and kind of the rejection of the political machine I'm not sure where I would rank him in my personal list I mean somewhere near the middle the, the list certainly gets harder to manage as there are more presidents so I don't know 12th or 13th maybe I'll, I'll update the list and I'll post it on my website which kind of needs an overhaul and an update anyways probably won't happen this week I'll shoot for I don't know it needs to happen I just got to figure out when But anyways, that is it for this week. Um, Next week, I'm going to be doing a book on Viking women. So we're going to see how that goes. The last one I kind of panned, but this one I hope will be better. And uh, I will see you guys later. See you next Sunday, I guess. Bye.